welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 78th episode, our returning guest is Jared Yates Sexton. You first heard Jared Yates Sexton on episode 65 of the podcast. Jared Yates Sexton is a writer, academic, and author who has published four books of fiction and has had his work appear in the New York Times, The New Republic, Salon, Paste, and elsewhere. His book, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, A Story of American Rage, was published by CounterPoint. It's out now, and you should definitely read it. Currently, he serves as an assistant professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. And now, on to the show. Hello? Rob? Yeah, hey, Jared. Hey, hey, I'm so sorry about the delay, man. No, it's okay. I was a couple minutes late myself, so this negates my lateness, so it's all good. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite type of delay, <laughs> right there. That's right, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for coming back on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so are you on book tour right now? Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in between stops right now. So I just got back from New Orleans, and I'm leaving tomorrow morning for Providence, Rhode Island. Oh wow! Okay, so you're you're all over everywhere. It, it's uh, yeah. I woke up this morning in like a white hot panic, and I was like, I don't know where I need to be, and I don't like it. <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's uh, that's awesome, though. I mean, this has to feel like a little bit of a victory lap after putting so much work into the book and then having it come out. And it, it seems like it's doing well. You said it's on its third printing on Twitter, I saw. So, yeah, it looks like it's going well. Yeah, it's weird, though, because it's like, you know, in between events and, and meeting people and stuff, it's like, that feels nice. But then, like, when I'm walking through, like, a corridor, inevitably Trump will be on a television, <laughs> you know, or a monitor. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's right. Right. This is still happening. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so I've yeah I've read the whole book and I have a whole bunch of questions for you. But before we uh, get into that, I, I think I have to congratulate you on your torrid affair with Natalia Vitalnitskaya. Um, you know, uh, how, how, what the heck was going on with that story? <laughs> you know, you know, I will say that uh, what I really appreciate there is for someone who had a torrid affair with her. Uh, I'm I'm still struggling to pronounce her name. So I thought that was a really pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, man, uh, that was like one of the weirder things to happen, I guess, in my quote-unquote public life, Mm -hmm. Um, to look up and suddenly get connected to that, and and then to finally see, like, up close how this, like, rumor machine slash propaganda thing Mm -hmm. works. Like, it it was pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, and I I guess I should say the source of me saying that, I looked it up, I googled it last night, is a website called whatdoesitmean.com, which if if I'm remembering correctly, said it was the, had the most articles every day on the internet, which was news to me because I never, ever heard of this site before. So. Well done. What a, what a mark. What a, what, what a way to get there. Exactly. Um, and then uh, this kind of happened uh, in the aftermath of the Don Jr. Uh, email disclosures, mm-hmm. and uh, you also kind of simultaneously became something of a meme uh, when you expressed frustration that you were working on that story for over a year, and then he just tweeted it out. Um, right. I, I did appreciate that you had a, a fair amount of good humor about it, because I did notice at one point your pinned tweet was, uh, they just printed my book out or whatever, so I appreciate <laughs> you had a little little bit of a sense of humor about it. So. <laughs> well, you kind of have to. To be completely honest, it's like um, the internet and like the modern political world mm-hmm. are so weird mm-hmm. that at some point or another, you just have to like sit back and marvel at the at the strangeness of mm-hmm. it. I mean, I, I the past what two years of my life have been um, so surreal that like it's it's. 
it's a source of like great joy, but it's also like a source of like total uh, fear and, mm-hmm. and 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 just revulsion in a certain way. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on, and, and the more that things like that happen, the more I'm just sort of like surprised and confused by it. <laughs> right, exactly. Because yeah, I'll see I'll see tweets that have nothing to do with anything, and people will just be quoting that, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I know the, I know the sort, I know what they're talking about. That's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess well, also kind of timing wise, interestingly, with your book coming out, um, also another retrospective of the 2016 campaign, obviously from somebody a little bit more high profile, would be the Hillary Clinton What Happened book. Hmm. Um, have you have you dove into that at all? Have you read any of it? Uh, I've read excerpts from it. I'm actually saving it. Um, I have a couple of long drives coming up on the tour, so I'm planning on listening to it. Okay. But, um, I'll tell you what I am sort of like um, really not surprised by, but kind of relieved to see is it's, it's kind of good to see her unboxed, you know, <laughs> to see her sort of like uh, have an opportunity to like speak openly without, um, you know, worrying about consequences or political posturing. And uh, what I've seen so far, especially from her interviews and the excerpts, I, I think it's pretty remarkable seeing like who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I read uh, 30 pages of it or so in a, in a Barnes and Noble and it, uh, you know, I, I intend to read the rest, but um, it wasn't, it was a pretty easy read and I've heard the audiobooks the way to go as far as her uh, reading it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that, but uh, yeah, yeah, it is interesting to hear her perspective. Uh, now, do you think timing wise it's helpful though, because it seems like the, the biggest target that, that Trump would, would love to, to talk about is Hillary Clinton and the 2016 election. It's like catnip to him. So, um, you know, it's, of course it's a right to do this. I would never say that she should, that she shouldn't, uh, but do you, do you think the timing of it coming out now while everything's so fresh, uh, you know, is is helpful? Well, I think, you know, on, on two hands, there's a couple things happening here. Like, in, in terms of, like, production-wise, like mm-hmm. a book being released, this mm-hmm. was as quickly as it could have come out, which right. is, you know, sort of what happened with my book. Right. It was like, uh, you know, in, in terms of, like, a, a national release, like, this thing would have, you know, had to have been released in August or September, and that mm-hmm. was pushing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's totally natural and, and sort of expected. As far as, as far as you know, the political timing, I mean, you know, she is still a public figure. Mm-hmm. She's still, you know, a politician. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if somebody who won the popular vote, I think she has a reason to be able to speak out yeah. and, uh, and, and react to this stuff. And, and especially, you know, I think it's important that she reminds us not just how the election went down, but also like, you know, there's the excerpts I've read where, you know, she talks about how she felt like Trump was trying to like intimidate her and get in her space and, mm-hmm. and the way he was trying to sort of manipulate this um, very misogynistic campaign against her. I think it's important to remind people, especially if he's making deals with Democrats, that this is who that guy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I know last time we talked, uh, we spoke a little bit about the differences between writing nonfiction and fiction, uh, and I went back and listened to your interview a little bit, and I, I remember you called yourself a pundit, and I did get through the entire book, and I realized nowhere in there do you call yourself a journalist, full stop. Um, I think that's an interesting thing, because I, reading the book, you know, I'm a journalist, I you know, don't see you doing anything in the book that I wouldn't do. I mean, you do get pe- in people's faces and drink a fair amount, but who hasn't lately? I mean, I have a beer next to me right now, so what am I, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in any position to judge anybody in 2017. 
seen for that, but um, you know what I'm saying? I don't see you doing anything that's apart from what I would say a, a journalist does. And then a quote near the end, actually, I thought was, was a little bit illuminating. You said, I'd crossed over into the media and started looking at politics as a game of chess instead of a process by which real people were affected in real and lasting ways. Does that have some weight on your decision to skirt that term, or what's what's your thinking there? Well, I, I actually, I mean, I, I consider myself a journalist and a pundit at different times. Hmm. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's weird because we actually, we have this weird media environment where things are switching and these old norms are kind of gone, and uh, I actually just read a book by um, Franklin Fowler, uh, World Without Mind, and he got into hmm. a little bit about how journalism's roots were very partisan and, and you know, were very sort of like political mm-hmm. and how that changed later on when it came to ad buying. Um, I think we're getting back to the point where journalism sort of doesn't have a choice but to be partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't think that you can cover this presidency and be completely objective because one of the reasons that journalism exists, I think, is you are supposed to not only, you know, talk truth to power, but you're also supposed to sort of sound the alarm when things aren't working the way they're supposed to work. So I, I feel like when I, like if I go to rallies, if I go to events, if I'm reporting on what's happening, I think I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I'm uh, researching uh, white supremacy collections or trends in America, then I'm a journalist. And then I also think I've, I've got this other side of, of what I do where I guess you would call me a pundit or a correspondent or, mm-hmm. or however you would get into that. I, I, I think I do both things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, there was actually a, a moment later on in the campaign, and, and, and I think that's what I was getting into in the book, is mm-hmm. there was a moment later in the campaign where I realized what the difference is between those things and how pundits are one of the problems in this country because they are they're watching this as if it's a sporting event, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they're watching everything happen like without that human element. And mm-hmm. I actually, I had a moment where I, I was in the middle of it and was having to sort of deal with that myself and had to come back to terms with exactly why I did this. So I think, mm-hmm. I think for me that the difference between journalism and punditry is, is something I'm still like fighting and mm-hmm. trying to figure out, especially because I think it's one of the more important things going on in our country. Right, right. Well, I, I think that to be, uh, you know, I think the one thing that I, I do agree with is that I think the, uh, to be, a, 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 you know, that detached objectivity, God voice, you know, not having any emotion, being an android and just, you know, saying the facts and not giving any personal opinion, I, I feel like that's kind of got to go by the wayside in these days, because I feel like to be totally bloodless about it is to do a disservice to people that would read you, because it's, everything is so visceral right now. It doesn't feel like there's any way to disconnect what's happening from how it, you know what I mean, how how norm-breaking and everything this is. We can't pretend this is normal. You know, I just don't well, think we have that luxury. Citizen? Yeah, how can you be a citizen in the mm-hmm. middle of this mm-hmm. and, and not weigh in? Because, you know, there's going to be a moment, and, and it all depends on how things happen, but there's going to be a moment 20, 30, 40 years from now mm-hmm. where we look back on this, and there's going to be an accounting mm-hmm. of, of who... 
of who acted and who didn't. Right. And to sit here and just, you know, give the give the facts of a situation like mm-hmm. this is what somebody did, here's where they went. Right. We're no longer living in a fact based society. Mm-hmm. We're living in um spin come to life. So I, I really don't understand how you could be completely objective in this time period. It it doesn't seem responsible now. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. Um, one of the things I think you do really well in your writing is you really uh, put a lot of effort into empathizing with people, and you do this with people that I personally haven't even tried to empathize with. Which I'm thinking of Dylan Roof here. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do you think it's do you find it difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone like that? Because I see the pictures of him with you know that the you know, flag of Rhodesia and the burning American flag and and all this craziness, and I just I don't feel any uh, human connection to somebody like that but you know he is a human being an american he came from the same you know country i did so you know how different could he possibly be and you know what do you think of uh, empathizing with people like that and does it change you in some way by putting yourself on that level because you know it's not even a headspace i'm prepared to go into in a lot of ways you know one of one of the first times i ever had a moment like that um have you ever read the unabomber manifesto i don't think i've read all of it but i've read enough of it to to know the gist of it yeah I think, okay yeah. so so if, if you ever if you ever have a free afternoon mm-hmm. that that's an interesting way to spend it i'll just mm-hmm. put it that way mm-hmm. so you have this person who like um you know had all these senseless attacks and murders and and all this and i read it a few years ago and i was like wow philosophically he's got points mm-hmm. right he he has there's there's an underlying intelligence to this where he is making points how he goes about punctuating that and and attacking uh, is, is the problem. It's mm-hmm. not the philosophy. It's it's how the philosophy is put into action. Mm-hmm. Dylan Roof um, was different. His philosophy was obviously jaded and perverted and and problematic. But then I started reading it. And I realized, um, as I said in the book, I realized when I started reading Dylan Roof's thing that when when I first heard of him and I saw the picture of him and of course I was watching the reports of what he had done and I, I looked at him and I, I had that moment where I thought wow this is an idiot kid and you know he, he's obviously just um, I, I guess you would say ignorant and, and, and dumb and you know sort of like this uh, kid from a poor background who doesn't know anything and then I started reading his writings as they started uh, coming about and I, I realized there was an intelligence behind them hmm. and it was an intelligence that was being directed in the right way. It was an intelligence that had been um, misled and perverted mm-hmm. and actually through cognitive dissonance had been given a, a, an escape route to an easier explanation that led to him killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I did. I had a long moment trying to figure him out and trying to understand what that intelligence was doing and where it was going. And and actually, I think I think Dylan Roof is very emblematic of something else that's going on in this country. This is something that um, I'm doing some research on for, for the next book. And that is this group of, of young white male people who mm-hmm. who are, are, are being radicalized mm-hmm. and, and, you know, through the idea of fake news mm-hmm. or or uh, 
subjective facts or mm-hmm. however you want to call it. And and I started realizing that this was part of a larger situation as opposed to a personal situation, mm-hmm. which is exactly what this country doesn't talk about. Like we talk about lone wolves. We talk about, you know, individuals who go out and do this, who are unhinged and cause these problems. But we don't talk about the larger societal problem. Mm-hmm. And when I started looking at him as a person, I started looking at him as possibly an intelligent person who had been not just misled, but manipulated. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of started opening the door for that, I think, larger, more important there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the evidence for what you're saying is uh, borne out by the pictures coming out of Charlottesville, you know, and you see these all these young white guys who they feel like they're the victim, you know, they're the ones that are getting the short end of the stick. Um, and they've been in these, you know, like, like you said, they've been radicalized, like we talk about terrorists being self-radicalized online and whatever, that it's really no different. It's, you know, it's, it's a kinship with a larger diaspora that, you know, we, we hadn't considered before that, oh, maybe white people are susceptible, susceptible to this too. So, um, well, it's the exact same thing. And, and it, it, it's weird to say it, but it's the exact same thing that we see with ISIS, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. we see, we see groups of people who have in the past had more power than they have now. Um, their control and their power is is under fire and being attacked by um, you know progress mm-hmm. and and as economics meet with sociology psychology takes over and so they're they're they can be radicalized and mm-hmm. and their frustration and um, their aggr- their their aggravation can be acted upon and the next thing you know you have radicalized murderers mm-hmm. and, and I actually think that um, and again we're talking about masculinity too right mm-hmm. there's, there's like a lot of different parts to this. And uh, so what we see is a group of people who now live in this subjective world who are ripe to be manipulated and ripe to be fed this this trash and this drivel. And 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 they will and have acted. And, and I, I think that that's a, a much larger issue than we give it credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, everybody wants to talk about identity politics, but this is identity politics right here. You know, this is yeah. a, a very specific kind that we, I guess, I didn't have the imagination before before now but now it's kind of in our, all of our faces so um but yeah one of the uh, surprises in your book at least to me uh, was how hard you came down on bernie sanders and his supporters uh, in fact the first time you talk about him in the book uh, you say everybody knew bernie sanders wouldn't be president uh, you later describe him and his supporters as angry compare them to trump supporters in some way uh, what was your overall impression of his campaign uh, why could not he have been president you know i, I i'm sympathetic to the argument that he would have beat trump on because, you know, I feel like the right through, and you talk about, you know, Fox News and all these places, Rush Limbaugh, uh, I feel like they've kind of, uh, you know, it's baked into the cake that they hate the Clintons, like, and Hillary especially. So it's that's kind of a special case, and I don't think they would have had that cudgel to beat him with. And granted, you know, he's a socialist, he's, you know, this and that, they could have smeared him with. But, you know, what do you think of that argument? Well, I've spent a lot of time um, sort of, you know, uh, reassessing the election in terms of what ifs and, and and what could happen here and what could happen there. I, I think there is a uh, very real possibility that Bernie Sanders could have beat Donald Trump. I think there's a very real possibility Hillary Clinton could have beat Donald Trump. I think it's all about, you know, the mm-hmm. moves that are made. Mm-hmm. But when I wrote that he wasn't going to be president, um, I, I think I was writing that from the point of view of uh, a large part of what led to Hillary Clinton's nomination was, um, 
you know, they, they always say this thing about name recognition, mm-hmm. right? They're, you know, her name recognition was so much higher than his. But what we're actually talking about is inevitability. And, um, you know, since we moved in the 1970s uh, away from smoke-filled rooms into, um, you know, primary systems, um, we now have basically the illusion that these are free and open elections, but they're not exactly, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the heavy thumb of the, of the party is always on the scale. Right. And this was always Hillary Clinton's nomination to lose. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> she was she was going to win that nomination basically with the help of the DNC for a very, very long time. And uh, what Bernie Sanders did was actually a pretty incredible campaign for most of it. Uh, by the time he won Michigan, I would say that that is like one of the more successful upstart campaigns mm-hmm. that we've seen in American mm-hmm. uh, political history. Yeah. As far as his supporters, I actually think, and, and this um, this is one thing that I had to struggle with a, a lot because I actually admired Bernie Sanders quite mm-hmm. a bit, and um, I actually don't necessarily hold against him what some of his supporters became. Because as I was writing in the book, um, a lot of these people weren't necessarily Democrats or liberals. A lot of the people who came to his campaign and, and sort of gave their heft and their weight to it uh, were what we would call anarchists or um, revolutionaries, mm-hmm. right? Like there was a there was a large group of people who uh, came to support him, who came to support him because they they wanted to burn the system down, and they had been frustrated for a very long time. And I think that's where we saw a lot of this, and I think that's where we see a lot of like uh, Antifa people now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of young people who are very angry about what America has become, and I think Bernie Bernie Sanders for a while was their avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we saw outside of the Democratic National Convention, which is really where I saw it boil over. Was mm-hmm. during the riots. Um, I, I think a lot of those people um, weren't necessarily inspired by him to, to act in that way, but they found an outlet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I, I, I admired him a lot. I actually thought his campaign was uh, pretty incredible, and I think I think I wrote in the book at one point that I, I felt like his campaign was the closest thing we had to an heir to Obama's campaign, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in its rhetoric and, and uh, how it presented itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, of his supporters, I think that they were a group of people who who needed someone to voice their anger, and I think he was he was very capable of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, one concept that I, I've actually heard of before, but I was reminded by in your book, is the concept of attribution bias. I think it explains a lot about our current politics. Uh, could you first describe what that is and how it figured into the 2016 campaign? Because I think it really is sure. kind of the skeleton key for a lot of this here. Sure. Um, there, there is, and this is a branch off of uh, cognitive theory, mm-hmm. right? This is all about talking about how how we think about thinking and how we think about uh, processing information. And so mm-hmm. one of the big underlying parts about this book is, is cognitive dissonance uh, is this idea that when humans run across information, um, they have a unconscious decision that their brain makes. And the decision is, do I believe this information? And there's a lot of mechanics that go into it. At first, if that information runs contrary to what you already believe, most of the time you're not going to believe it because it's so much easier to uh, not believe something that 
it is to completely restructure your entire belief system. Uh, what goes along with that is when we meet people who disagree with us, particularly if we don't know them, if they are anonymous to us, if they are strangers, uh, that system has like a secondary thing going for it. And that secondary thing is we believe when somebody disagrees with us, why would they disagree with us? We don't want to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt and think that they have like good intentions. So what we do is we automatically believe that they are evil. We believe that um, they have this uh, really bad reason for doing this. And so, for mm-hmm. instance, when we talk about, um, you know, when we talk about what the right thinks of liberals, mm-hmm. uh, there's no way that liberals are progressive because they want to help people. They're progressive because they're they're lazy or they're um, they want to bring the system down or they're anarchists and revolutionaries and and you know deep down like Alex mm-hmm. Jones now goes on the radio once a once a day and talks about how liberals are demons and and how you know it, it but it, it's a vilification of of opposition and we've we've seen these echo chambers really ratchet that um, mm-hmm. that cognitive theory up and and it's it's become one of the biggest problems I think we have oh yeah absolutely and I, and I only bring it up because I feel it in myself sometimes because I, I wake up and I read the news and I'm like these Republicans just wake up every morning and think how can I make the country worse like of course they mm-hmm. don't think that but it feels that way to me like it's like how can I like get up today and work as hard as I can to like move the clock backwards and just take away everything every gain we've made since you know the Great Depression <laughs> it's like let's just you know well, of course that's not how they're thinking of it on their side they're thinking they're they're working just as nobly as I think I'm working so it's just a matter of perspective well and then there's a there's like a different layer of that and and so what what I just described uh, for anyone listening was basically like the 101 version mm-hmm. of this and uh, we're way past that we're to like postgraduate theory <laughs> level of this so what what you just said about Republicans is completely true like they are trying to do the you know they think they're doing the best for the country so like let's talk about welfare mm-hmm. right when they want to like go after people who are you know supposedly like welfare cheats or they're abusing the system or whatever their uh, their attribution is basically they think that these people are immoral mm-hmm. and that they're out to gain the system mm-hmm. and so because they have that theory their theory is then well they're wrong we're right and we're protecting people so then actually their motives may be what you would call quote unquote good but they're actually pretty unethical and they're actually pretty mm-hmm. you know some people would call evil and 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 mean mm-hmm. so what you actually get when you get a few shades of this and, and this is actually another huge problem in this country is we're so far down the road and the knot is so tight that we've gotten to the point where yeah, maybe maybe their intentions are good, but it doesn't matter if the intentions are good because it's so warped at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so the uh, you, you went to the Republican and the Democratic conventions, uh, which you kind of just described the kind of the people that showed up because then you, you say later that the Green Party uh, convention was the first place where you actually had uh, press credentials. And that, that chapter was actually really interesting to me uh, with the Green Party convention. Uh, first of all, the fact that Julian Assange was the uh, kind of invited teleconferenced-in guest of honor uh, – 
that got me thinking about how, you know, Sean Hannity and, you know, all these super right-wing people are now so on board with, you know, uh, Julian Assange. I don't remember saying them, hearing them say much about this when Bradley Manning was, you know, doing what, what he was doing or Chelsea Manning back then. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, now, now they've suddenly flipped when it, when it turns to their side. But, uh, and it kind of further made me think of that photo I'm sure you've seen of that dinner in Moscow honoring RT where mm-hmm. you see Putin next to Jill Stein, next to Michael Flynn, and it's like that horseshoe theory where it's like the left and the right, you know, when you get to a certain fringe, it's like there's there's that crossover. Um, what did you see at the Green Party convention? And, and I just thought that whole, whole scenario was fascinating. Yeah, so the Green Party convention was kind of a disaster in every possible <laughs> way. I mean, you know, it, it, it was strange, and, and I was really glad that I, I was able to go to, uh, you know, and just chronologically, I was able to go to the Democratic National Convention for the Green Party Convention, because at the Democratic Convention was where you saw a lot of people who identified themselves as Green Party, but were going to, like, cross over and vote for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a chunk of his support. And the Green Party is traditionally a very, very liberal party. Mm-hmm. And um, so I well, I got to the Green Party Convention, and a lot of them were still carrying Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, signs, and Jill Stein was still talking about Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And so you had a lot of liberals, um, far, far, far less liberals, who were at this thing, but there was actually a, a strange amount of um, anger that looked a lot like things at the heart of the uh, Donald Trump campaign. Uh, I saw racism there. I saw you know, chance of lock her up. And what I, what I slowly came to realize was that it's not necessarily the horseshoe theory, which I think is important in, in starting to understand the situation. But what we actually have in this country, I'm starting to find out, is we basically have two parties. We have one party that believes that American government um, is flawed, that needs, you know, can be worked on. And we have another group of people that just want to tear it down to the studs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in each of those, there is the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Um, in the party that, that believes this thing needs to be torn down. On the right, you have people who support Donald Trump, and on the left, you have people like the Green Party. Uh, and everybody else in America is basically on the other side, just trying to survive in a shared society. And uh, everybody else is sort of like trying to destroy that shared society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a really eye-opening, weird day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the one scene you had of the uh, kind of impromptu press gaggle "Quote unquote," with the uh, very sympathetic uh, Green Party bloggers saw, tossing the softballs at, at Jill Stein. That was that was pretty evocative. Of you know, it's like we don't really need to ask this person too many que- hard questions because it's not like this person really is going to be president. You know, you kind of had a, that that view of it's like you know everybody kind of oh. knew the score. You know what I mean? It's oh, just, it was incredible. Yeah. And, and for those um, anybody who's interested, and and again, this is a good way to spend an afternoon. Anyone who's interested should try and track down. Interviews with Jill Stein. Go find um, anything you can find where she's doing a press conference or a mm-hmm. sit-down interview. Uh, she's not a serious person. I mean, she, you know, she's obviously intelligent because you know she's earned degrees or you know whatever. But mm-hmm. she's not. She's not up to snuff when it comes to politics. She, my God, the fact that she was a party's nominee for president is should terrify people. <laughs> and so when we had this press conference, which was you know. So supposed to be the crowning moment. She had just been nominated by the Green Party. She mm-hmm. was 
a national nominee for president. She went into this press conference, which was shoddy and terrible, and you have a bunch of like very, very young Green Party bloggers helping her answer fundamental questions that are softballs, mm-hmm. right? The easiest questions imaginable. And you have these bloggers like coaching her through it and giving her thumbs up and like really letting her know that they had her support. And she still couldn't handle it. I mean, she got, I think she got one halfway decent question from uh, Elliot Nelson, a reporter, and she just couldn't do it. She could not handle it. And, Mm -hmm. And these bloggers basically went up to her afterwards and were like, I'm sorry that went like that. And I think she did great. And and it was just like the most like flummoxing thing I'd seen in forever. The fact that this this person was going to be running for president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe next time you should go to the libertarian one. I'm sure that would be a fun experience as well. So. I, I I read enough articles to know that that thing sounded like more of a party. Yeah, I read that Dave Weigel uh, from the Washington Post account. And that that was that was a pretty interesting <laughs> situation. Yeah, if, if I can make that happen in 2020, I'm, I'm definitely going to. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so in the chapter where you talk about alternative media, um, you mentioned that you watched every single episode of Glenn Beck's show between 2009 and 2011. Why in the name of everything that's holy would you do that to yourself? Well, first of all, just hearing you say that out loud is, is very shameful. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I, it's a, it's a, that's a true fact, and I wrote it in my book, and just hearing it out loud made me shudder a little bit. Um, so at the time... Uh, um, I was I was working as uh, as a adjunct professor at Ball State University, mm-hmm. and you know this was around the time where the economy was still a total disaster, and uh, we had no idea exactly where the country was going. And um, I caught the first episode of it, and I was just like, "This is very dangerous, mm-hmm. right?" And this is this is actually uh, uh, terrifying. And I, I have an old. Uh, uh, idiom, and that is, if you're at a bar and uh, a dangerous, crazy person comes into the bar, you don't turn your back on them, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. you, you keep you keep at least one eye on them. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the exact same way with Alex Jones. Like I listen I, every week, I listen to at least one episode of Alex Jones just to keep up with the level of absurdity and what the narrative is. And, and uh, in all actuality, when you when you watch this stuff, I think that we forget that there are people out there who buy it and that there are people out there who are influenced by it. And you actually get a pretty good sense of where the narrative and mood and it of the country is going. And, uh, people, people forget it, but Glenn Beck was incredibly powerful politically for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I just had this, um, just waking anxiety terror that he was going to continue gaining power, but mm-hmm. it wasn't his power to hold. I mean, it, eventually this turned into, you know, what we call the tea party and eventually Trumpism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, I think it was more the anxiety of who he was and what he represented is why mm-hmm. I had to watch that. Right. Absolutely. Well, you're, <laughs> you're made of stronger stuff than I am. 
because I, I get through five minutes of Rush Limbaugh and I'm like, I, I'm screaming at the radio right now and I need I need to find a funk station or something to, to make this all go away. Um, but you're right, this is the entire media diet of certain people, not certain people, a lot of people, uh, people that we're related to. You know, I really thought one of the more powerful sections of your book was where you kind of mention your family um, and the kind of great rift uh, that has kind of sprung up in the last, uh, you know, since, you know, basic, well, let's, let's be real, since Obama was elected, maybe even before then, um, you know, the people getting their entire worldview from Fox News and whole, I, I have experienced it myself, whole branches of my family are completely uh, alien to me. We don't even speak the same language, you know, like we don't even talk about the same things or use the same words. Like, you know, this is, yeah, I feel like Fox News and you mentioned Glenn Beck and, and Alex Jones, I feel like these people have split the country into, you know, these non-overlapping, you know, uh, kingdoms and it's just I don't even I don't even know how to relate you know yeah I think we're seeing and, and the more that I look at it um, and, and I, I wish that I had something better to say about this like I wish I had better news but it really is beginning to feel like to me that we're seeing a, a shift in in how society works uh, in the past you know it was it was the family that that held society together right like it was it was your immediate bond like no matter what happened no matter if you agreed or disagreed you always went back to your family and um you know you could disagree about politics you know unless you were ostracized from your family and thrown out Mm -hmm. um but now now i don't think we're having that that uh continue i think we're seeing especially with uh the internet we're seeing groups of like-minded people coalesce around each other in mm-hmm. new chosen artificial families mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, this is part of the echo chamber phenomenon, but it's also one of the reasons why we can be related to people, but see our bonds sort of, you know, be strained is because we don't have to go to each other for verification anymore. We don't really argue with each other anymore. What we do is we start to feel like our family isn't who is closest to us, right? Mm-hmm. It's the people around us. It's our friends. It's our colleagues. It's the people who basically agree with us mm-hmm. and we can go and talk to them about our opinions. And so it's actually making the bond of family, not just disintegrate to a certain extent, but it's actually making us all entrenched more and more in our own opinions. Yeah. And I think this is kind of the opposite of what the people who, uh, you know, came up with the internet or promoted it in the early stages kind of imagined where it's like, Oh, the whole world coming together. It's like, not really. It's just, you basically find people with your little any idiot, idiosyncratic uh, preferences and you all just encamp together and you don't let anyone else in your fort you know and it's it's not like you're connecting with the whole world you're just connecting with a very small subset of the world that you close yourself off from everything else um, well yeah and I think I think that um, what you just said I think hits on an important part of this which is I think the people who created um, you know Facebook and Twitter and mm-hmm. social media and even the internet I think that a lot of them had a a very um, utopian view of the world. They thought that they were going to usher in paradise and a new era of peace with with these tools, right? But but in fact, I, I, I think that how we've seen it unfurl and, and progress, it, nobody could have known, mm-hmm. right? This is it's very much you know like 
setting loose on the world, uh, um, you know, an invention and having no clue of what it would eventually become. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still don't think that we understand the fundamental effects of what we've let loose. I don't think that we understand um, not only how it's changing our relationships, but how, how it's changing us personally. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we're we're trying to catch up. I mean, the the fact that you had the news asking about echo chambers assisted by the internet, like when the fact that that came up in 2016, I mean, this stuff has been going on since at least the the early 2000s. And um, the fact that we're just now catching up, I think is one of the more sort of worrying things that we're this far behind the curve. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kind of an interesting parallel in my own life with uh, reading your book, you talked about how people close themselves off, especially on social media, Facebook, things like that um you know i had one of my friends after the you know unpleasant the latest unpleasantness uh, just one of many in st louis with the you know cop shooting the black person and getting away with it um you know uh this person that i know posted black lives matter on facebook something i've said myself and had you know people from my own family block me for saying uh and this person did that and the first comment was pitbull lives matter and then they got into this argument and ended with the person unfriending them on facebook and you know that you know, everyone was congratulating them for standing up to this person, and I was like, okay, that's great. You may be the last person they're Facebook friends with who would say Black Lives Matter out loud. What if you're the last connection to that way of thinking, and they're going to go the rest of their whatever life they have, and they're not going to hear a divergent opinion like that to make them, you know, rethink what they're thinking? And it's like, yeah, we can all pat ourselves on the back that we took this stand or whatever, but like, where does that get us? Where do we, where are we going with this? You know? Well, and then. So there's so many different parts to that too, right? It's how do we expect to sort of have that battle? Like who who who's supposed to do that, right? And, and who who's putting themselves, you know, basically in the sights of someone to have not just unpleasant but at times abusive conversations, like. Um, you know, is, is, is that everyone's responsibility? Is that like the, is that the relative's responsibility? And, and it's such a large, large problem and a complicated problem that I don't even know where you start on that. Mm -hmm. I don't even know. Um, you know, I, I put in the book that, you know, this is obviously a way that our, our realities get sealed off from each other, but I hesitated from giving a solution because I don't know even how to start formulating a solution. Mm-hmm. It's a problem that is so giant that I don't even know where you start untangling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not even sitting on some, some pious hill saying this. I've done the same yeah. thing. I've un, I've unfriended people for the things I perceived as being racist or small-minded or, or bigoted in some way. Uh, you know, I'm not above that. I don't think it's my responsibility to put up with abuse just so I can educate people that I don't have the, edu- you know, responsibility, I don't think, to educate. You know, I figured this out somehow. You figure it out, you know? <laughs> like, am I supposed to, like, teach everybody in the world how to, you know, sing in harmony? Like, is that really my job? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not being paid well enough for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, for me, I, I, I made the decision a while back that I I was going to do that, mm-hmm. right? Like, like I, I made the decision a long time ago with my family. Uh, I, my, my family, I, I love them very much, but um, they are very ignorant. 
in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. and um, in, in pretty much every way you can imagine they they can be at times a very very stereotypical working class white family and um, I made a decision a long time ago I was either going to go away from them and just really not have anything to do with them or I was going to be the, the voice of reason with mm-hmm. them and, and I chose the latter and I can tell you that there have been inroads at times but there's been a lot of frustration frustration and uh that's what i've chosen to do but i also can't sit here and tell people that they need to do it and and so again that's the crux of the problem is mm-hmm. what do you do right that? yeah absolutely yeah um it, it, another interesting anecdote you had from the book that kind of relates to current events you talked about uh, matt drudge calling hurricane matthew uh, fake news basically <laughs> while your house is getting pummeled by a you know hurricane and and then that made me think of this latest, you know, Irma thing with, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter, you know, saying it's it's fake news and then them evacuating, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, how do we go forward when the weather's up for grabs? It's like, it's it's raining, okay, like there's not, do you feel the wetness hitting your face? Like, how much more real can it be, you know? <laughs> so. Well, and, and, you know, I actually think that the Rush Limbaugh thing, and, and this is also with Matt Drudge, mm-hmm. uh, I, I am a giant proponent of freedom of speech. I'm a giant proponent of, of, you know, my freedom extends from the tip of my nose to the tip of yours. Mm -hmm. But isn't that the modern equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater? I mean, like, you, you know, like when you really think about it, you have people who are obviously pushing some sort of like political agenda mm-hmm. with this. Uh, and I have to assume that Madrudge and Rush Limbaugh both not just put people in harm's way, but I have to assume that cause damage. I, I, I mean, you, you, you have to believe that. And so my problem is, you know, if you really believe that, like if you really, you know, believe that these storms are being hyped up by the media or whatever, um, if you really believe that and so you're speaking your mind about it, that's one thing. But when you are doing it and it is so obvious to push an agenda or for political profit, mm-hmm. I think then we get into like a, a, a different level of conversation, mm-hmm. right? Then all of a sudden we're talking about endangering people. And I think that you have a group of people in Drudge, Limbaugh, Alex Jones, uh, the people at Breitbart, like this, you know, what you would call the far right. Um, These are a group of people who have not only created echo chambers, but they didn't create echo chambers because necessarily they believed what they were saying. They've done it as a, as a matter of political manipulation. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, I think that now the fact that we have this subjective reality, I think we were always going to get here. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the progress of, of, of humanity is to eventually get to a point of subjective reality. I mean, every, everything that we have, every development, every invention has always been getting us to this point. But we have a group of people who are manipulating that uh, in the same way that, you know, you would have slumlords in, in urban cities. When people came there, they would build them tenements that, that uh, kept them, you know, in terrible conditions and endangered their lives. Or, you know, with industrialization, you had uh, business owners who would create factories and then lock the doors and let people die in fire. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you now have a group of people who are using this this progress, but they're doing it in such a way to manipulate people that it's not just unethical, but I actually think it's it's quite dangerous. Right, right. And, and, and I think that's actually, you know, again, it's like, you know, at the turn of the century, we had, like, children working in factories. Um, we didn't realize at the time, like, how wrong that was, and I think we, we still haven't realized how wrong it is for this group of people to, to be doing this. And I think later on in uh, history, if we are so lucky to not have a <laughs> nuclear war. Yeah, you're assuming uh, a lot there. <laughs> I am. And, you know, every time now that I talk about in the future, we'll do this. Like, oh, my God. Tone it down. Uh, but, you know, I, I think in the future we're going to look back and this is going to be the same thing as, like, yellow journalism. And, you know, how, um, you know, you have the Hearst family leading right. us into the Spanish-American War. Like, this is going to be a time period that we look back on mm-hmm. and we see an obvious trend that should have been obvious to us at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, talking about Alex Jones because that kind of fits perfectly into what he had to say when he was going through his child custody uh, battle, and you know they were talking about oh he says all these things on Infowars, and he was his response was oh you know I'm just an entertainer, just 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 having fun up here. I don't know, I don't really believe any of this. So it's like when the rubber really meets the road, when you're in court fighting for your kids, and it's really important to you. Oh, all of a sudden you know this is just this is all just smoke and mirrors, folks. It's all just all just fun and games, and it's like people believe you, dude. People believe everything that comes out of your mouth, and they think that you're telling the truth. Also, I love how he talks about the New World Order and the Illuminati and he somehow doesn't think Donald Trump would be involved in that if it existed. Give me a break, dude. You broke into Bohemian Grove and you don't think he would he would be there? Come on, dude. Like, where is your antenna right now? <laughs> well, first of all, I really enjoy that you just brought up Bohemian Grove. I used to live in Northern California and I actually went to the Bohemian Grove, but go on. <laughs> well, I, I, I just love that, you know, this is something that uh, I think about, like, you know, in the, in the genre of things that I think about constantly that nobody in my life thinks about. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Alex Jones, I actually think, and and if you don't mind, I, I, I like to get deep in the weeds on stuff like this. Oh, go ahead, um, man. I've, I've, been, okay. I've been down that rabbit hole, so give it, give it so, to me. So Alex Jones, in his custody case, I think when he came out and said, you know, I'm just a performer or whatever, I think that that is like a really, really interesting like place to dive into what what I would call identity in in you know the 21st century, and and here's the case. I think that Alex Jones, uh, deep down, is basically a conglomerate of three or four different people, and and I think everybody is. Quite frankly, I, I think that we've actually moved to a point in human existence where we are sort of a combination of different avatars. You know, um, you know, uh, we have uh, what is it? Code switching, right? Mm-hmm. We, you know, when when you know, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you as this figure. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to you as as the person who wrote that book. I'm not right. talking to you as the guy who was drinking his coffee just mm-hmm. a little bit ago. Right. Like you, you have to switch in these different things. Um, you know, I'm. 
I'm also a teacher, which when I go in front of a classroom, I am a character. And I have to be because, you know, the person who is actually me could not handle being in front of a classroom mm-hmm. speaking about, you know, intellectual engagement for hours at a time. Uh, so I actually think that Alex Jones, when he said that, I think he was both being honest and also lying. Hmm. I think that I think that he has become so entrenched in the character of Alex Jones that he probably doesn't even know the difference between the person who started out doing this and the person he's become. Mm-hmm. And that is so deep and esoteric, but also incredibly important when we're talking about modern America, which is where you have 300 million people who basically inhabit three or four different lives at any given time. You have your uh, professional life, your personal life, your online life, um, you know, your your internal life, and you have all of these things happening all at once. So things don't make sense anymore. And and when we're actually looking at how um, politics and society moves forward, we're actually looking at people who uh, are, are very confused about who they are and what they're advocating and their own personal interest in things. And so that's how you end up with a group of people who support. Donald Trump, who and they don't support uh, rich people. They might be, um, you know, what uh, t- evangel- evangelist, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they might be evangelical, and yet they're looking at a guy who's been married, I think, three times, who has wanted public affairs, who is very um, vulgar and sexual, and all these different things. You have a group of people who support him, even though he runs counter to everything they believe and everything about their own identity. But he is now. Now the most entrenched thing in their identity, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have a group of people who now basically say, I'm a Trump person, which means that they are of a certain political, sociological perspective, even though they don't believe in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And and yet every day they have this cognitive dissonance of, he, you know, he's not building the wall. Well, he will build the wall. He's just lying to them and them and them. So we fundamentally live in like a, um, a dishonest society where no one even really realizes how dishonest they're actually being, but they have to continue to entrench themselves in that dishonesty. And I think Alex Jones is like a really good figure to try and understand that through because he's so bombastic and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, I'm surprised you haven't bought any male vitality uh, supplements we're listening to so much or Alex Jones. Bone brew. Have you have you heard about bone brew? Mm-mm. Okay, so again, I, and I'm so sorry to go on a tangent, but nobody else knows about this. Okay, <laughs> so of all of his products, Alex Jones sells, which is, you know, he'll, he'll get on and he'll talk about, you know, how Donald Trump is a real man, and the next thing you know, he's selling, like, male vitality. And then new, new tropics. We got the new tropics, folks. Big information. New tropics. Yeah, so there's this thing called bone brew, which is actually just sort of uh, some formula that is a bunch of, like, chicken parts, you know, <laughs> that have just been boiled down, and he's like, this is what the caveman the caveman ate, and, and what we need to do is we need to get back to that Neanderthal life, and you're like, you're like, that is so off the rails, mm-hmm. like, unhinged, but yet, you know, this is, like, what these people are doing, they're they're drinking bone brew, they're, they're eating things called caveman, and, like, you said nootropics and and you know their collodial uh, silver stuff and so they have all these trinkets that are that are absurd but they're putting a lot of their time and energy into it it's crazy Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, switching gears a little bit, you were talking about some recommendations for the Democratic Party, which are interesting, and, and I thought that you you made some good points about you know NAFTA kind of being the, the thing you saw, at least in your own kind of working class background, that split people off from uh, what traditionally was the Democratic bases, the unions, the working class, whatever. Um, I, I was wondering if you had read, David, did you read the ta Coates piece, The First White President? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. Because I, I read that right after I read your book, and it, it kind of like mixed all up in my head, and I thought it was an interesting kind of point-counterpoint there, because you were kind of saying the thing that, that he was kind of arguing against was that, you know, this is, you know, this is about economics, and we've left these people behind, and we should, if you're going to attack Trump, you should you should focus on him as being out of touch with their actual everyday economic interests, and he's, you know, he's a bad businessman, and he's, you know, put all these chinks in his armor, but obviously his point more was that, you know, whiteness was the main, you know, and, and unifying factor of his thing, and, and this, this talk about economic anxiety or, you know, the working class, you're really only talking about the white working class, and, and blacks of, you know, the black working class is expected to do bad, and that's not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, something that we don't expect from uh, our society, but when, you know, we have an, an opioid epidemic, uh, all of a sudden is treated with kid gloves and treatment, and we want to change all these laws, but when there's a crack epidemic, you know, lock them up, mandatory minimums, you know, record prison population. So I was just wondering how you, you thought about that kind of divide or what kind of path the Democratic Party or, or liberals in general should take to recapture that, because it does seem like there's there's a separation there. Well, yeah, and, and so I, I would actually say that I both agree and disagree, and, and I actually, I thought that was a, a very good argument on, on mm-hmm. in, in terms of what he was making. Right, uh, exactly. I would, actually, I would actually say that when we're talking about the Democratic Party and we're talking about, you know, what I, I guess you could summarize it into what we're talking about with a populist approach moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're talking about different things. Um, and, and I think the crux of it is, is this, is that we can have identity politics and we can have uh, populism. Mm-hmm. And the reason is this. The reason is that the largest um, manipulation of the American public, particularly the working class white Americans, has been a, um, it, it's been a sleight of hand, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's been a lie. So for the longest time, people have been told basically that uh, economics has to be, at its heart, a tribalist issue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so working class white Americans have been satiated for a long time uh, by being told, well, you're not doing well, but at least you have social and political power over mm-hmm. these groups of right, people. Exactly. Right, exactly. You're not doing great, but these other people, they're doing, they, worse. <laughs> they're doing worse, and you're farther up on the social mm-hmm. and political spectrum than mm-hmm. them. What the Democratic Party needs to do, and, and this is such an incredibly hard, nuanced thing, and and quite frankly, this is one of those things that in 2016, um, it would be really hard to do. But I, I think it's the only way moving forward, and it's the only way that we get the car out of the ditch, which is 
to let people know how this game has been played, right? And and, and the fact is, um, I, I was writing about this not too long ago. Um, you have a lot of uh, of like working class white people right now who are fighting for you know they're mad that their factories are gone and that their their mining jobs are gone. And and I say that as a person whose family are miners and factory workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they're they're wanting these old jobs back, but fundamentally they never were good jobs. Right. They were terrible yeah, jobs. Exactly. Um they, they used them, they 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 chewed them up and spit them out. Mm-hmm. Uh mine workers have uh terrible standards of living. Mm-hmm. I mean I have a younger brother who um is a mine worker and it's aged him. I mean, you know, it it it, it you know, you make decent money, but they you make decent money because you're sacrificing your your mm-hmm. state of life. Right. Um and the thing that needs to be done and this is a very large, very complicated thing, is to draw the bridge between economic and social uh, uh, well-being. And and the, the whole idea of this is, for as long as we're told that we are different and that, that we are fundamentally opposed to one another, the more that we can be kept apart from each other in terms of, like, financial solidarity. Mm-hmm. And, and economically, we are a lot stronger when we are a united front of a working and middle class taking on the people who are in terms of uh, are in charge of production right mm-hmm. uh, but for the longest time these wedge issues have kept us apart but we can take on these social issues when we realize that by empowering other people and by making uh, the system more fair it's more fair for everybody mm-hmm. the more that we take care of these wedge issues the more that it means that um, no longer are we fighting against one another we're actually all in agreement that we should all all be better off and if we're all better off we all do better mm-hmm. and and i think that that is a very very large issue that would be a whole lot better if we didn't have a political system where parties are like, well, we can talk about this, but not that. And Mm -hmm. for the midterms, we should be taking this on versus that. And I think it's fundamentally a problem of imagination. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is is a system where we forget what we're actually doing. We're so deep in the weeds on on, on the uh, the symbology of it and the metaphor of it and what we can actually be. Like, Democrats have gotten so um, mixed up over whether or not they should be populist or going after identity politics when I think that they've become blind to the fact that, that those things are inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. And, and and they should be doing all of it at the exact same time, but they need better messengers and they need a better message. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, And then kind of thinking about it here in Indiana, you know, you mentioned in the book, they went for Obama in 08, and then they, of course, went for Trump in 16. And you know, I imagine a lot of those people still live here they're still alive they're still voters you know they could be swayed one or another but then you know i look at something like the carrier deal in indianapolis where you know trump made this big announcement we're saving the jobs and then mike pence made sure that the state picked up the tab and all this stuff but the jobs are still going away then we find out later but you know i think the people directly connected to that the families may be angry about being duped but i have this you know funny feeling that if you ran the election again today i don't think the result would be different i think trump would probably still win Indiana, you know. So I think he absolutely would, yeah. and and you know the carrier thing was infuriating, and uh-huh. it, it was infuriating for for different reasons. Not just the fact that it was so hypocritical and such a lie. Like those jobs were still going to leave, right. but 
Okay, so for instance, if I if I looked at it from the point of view, if I was still living in Indiana with my family, uh, who you know my stepfather still works for a factory right now, and that factory is in constant trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to look at that from that perspective. In, in, in past years, I would look at that and be like, why that factory, right? Like, why would, why would that, why would they move heaven and earth for that factory? And then I would be like, oh, this is obviously a political ploy. This is obviously political posturing. So that has changed. Now it's just these symbolic victories that are, you know, that are political spin as they have always been. But it's by a person who says, well, political spin is political spin. I'll tell it to you the way it is. And so it's actually just a secondary level of lie, mm. a secondary level of manipulation. Mm-hmm. And so what actually happens is nobody comes out and says, why are you doing it for that factory? You're obviously lying and doing this as a, as a political motive. Like, that's not what people were doing. And I, I think people understood it economically, but it's not like the Democrats came out and did that. Mm-hmm. It's not like the opposition came out and did that. And so it's a very, very thin lie that just wasn't, um, it wasn't disputed. It wasn't taken out. And I think it just simply made the case like even harder to, to litigate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could uh, talk about you know, your book and ideas in it all day, but um, what is the next book that you're working on about? So right now um, I'm working on a book about um, my experiences growing up uh, in a patriarchal family. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm basically writing about toxic masculinity, how it gave us Trump, how it is basically um, – curb social progress and, and created a lot of problems. So it's about, um, you know, abuse, uh, socialization of masculinity, and basically how toxic masculinity, it not just hurts women and society, but it also hurts men too. Mm-hmm. And, and how, uh, this is another one of those things where we, we've lost our imagination and, and our ability to think outside of our very narrow boxes and how, if we can simply take care of that, I actually think that, um, you know, by promoting feminism and equality, I actually think it'd be good for men as well. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's an argument that hasn't necessarily been out there. Right. It's kind of like how people say the biggest victim of white supremacy is actually white people. You know? So that's exactly right. Yeah. No, no and, and, and you know, it's the funniest thing. Um, well, it's not funny, obviously, but, you know, you have all these people who are now carrying the Confederate flag as, like, a symbol of, 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 of opposition to America, right? And, yeah, like, this is, like, one of the most racist symbols and offensive symbols that we have, but you also have a bunch of, like, working-class white people who have adopted it. Mm -hmm. Um, They were not going to be doing very well under the Confederacy either, right? (laughs) This would have been been another um, federal system that would have, um, you know, kept up economic inequality and would have served, um, you know, the well-off and and, and the the wealthy. And so what you actually have is you have a group of people who um, have a false choice. Like, I'm going to hold up this patriarchal system, even though it means that I am hurting and I never get to talk about who I am and, and, and I never actually get what I need. And on top of that, I want back a job that, that breaks my back and, you know, I lose limbs over and, mm-hmm. and I die 
die an early death. And, and so because we have that false dichotomy, like we actually have a bunch of people who are working very hard to sort of build their own jail cell. Mm, yeah. Do you think there's anything like Midwestern or puritanical in that just coming from Indiana? Cause I do feel like there is a certain, like there's a certain pride people have here that it's like, I'm going to work myself to death. And it's like, yay. Yeah. It's like, what? yeah, I, I absolutely do. And, 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 and that is, uh, that is a large chunk of, uh, of what I'm writing about uh-huh. because, uh, there, there was a point in time and this all has to do with advertising. This has to do with generational shifts. Mm. Um, you know, we, we reached a certain point where, um, social and economic mobility was sort of stalled. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of Americans who weren't able to have better lives than the people who came before them. Mm. And, in the past, it used to be a man was defined by how he was able to sort of like progress. If he was able to like, you know, um, make, make himself a quote unquote self-made man, even though that was never like a real thing. Mm-hmm. So at some point it became obvious that social mobility was stalled. And so it became a thing where masculinity wasn't about pulling yourself up and by your bootstraps, it was about working yourself to death. Mm-hmm. Like you weren't able to pull yourself up, but you showed everyone that you were willing to die trying. Mm-hmm. And, And so you have uh, a group of people who uh, their labor became their source of their only source of identity and pride. And when that labor went away, um, it was filled with consumerism and also by political manipulation, which I think we're seeing a lot of right now. Yep. So uh, we're getting near the hour mark. Actually, we're over it. But uh, thank you so much for coming back on again. And is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? No. I mean, if you want to do an hour on bone brew sometime. (laughs) Maybe I'll do a taste test or something. (laughs) I think think that's the podcast I've been waiting to do. Just an hour talking about Alex Jones and bone brew. We'll have to see if we can get some kind of press uh, sample kit because I don't know if I want to, like, actually pay for that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks again so much. Everyone should go pick up his book. Uh, I think, uh, honestly, uh, you know, after reading that, I'm like, this is going to be looked at one of those primary source documents to figure out just what happened here. Like, we're going to look back at this. This is, like, on the ground. You're, you're going to get a lot of, you know, from the street-level view of, like, how it, you know, how it was at these places we only saw on TV. So I think it's a very worthwhile read. So uh, Thank you so much, Rob. That means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again for coming on, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right, talk to you soon, Rob. Later. Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.